Hello, 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 and welcome to More Than Money, a show that explores the psychology, emotions, and math of money so you can make better, smarter choices regardless of where you are on the income or wealth spectrums. I'm your host, Jacquette Timmons, sounding a little bit like Eartha Kitt today, but <laughs> that is not going to interrupt our flow because I'm so delighted for our show today and the fact that I have my second interview guest with me, a dear friend of mine, Charlie Gilkey, and I will tell you all about him, or actually I'm going to give the floor to him so that he can tell you a little bit about himself in just a moment. We're going to be talking about his forthcoming book, Start Finishing, and I particularly want to focus on a particular chapter where he talked about slaying dragons, so we'll get into all of that in just a moment. But to kind of help set the tone, what I wanted to share with you all is that I've known Charlie for several years. I feel really proud to call him my dear friend. And I absolutely loved his forthcoming book, Start Finishing. And I'm not just saying that because he's my friend. I'm not just saying that because I've benefited from his coaching and some of his products. I'm saying that because at the end of each chapter, or even as I was going through each chapter, he caused me to pause. He caused me to pause and to think about how I am approaching my work. And I think of work much like he does and more broadly in terms of personal projects as well as professional projects. But I also loved it because I saw so many parallels between his messages for finishing things that matter and how I talk with people about managing their choices around money. And both of them really kind of highlighted that we are in constant relationship, right? So he used the word in, in his book, Mirrors. I often talk about money as being a mirror with my clients. And so when we think about mirrors, whether it's through the lens of projects or money, they are a reflection of our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with our outer world. So what I want to invite you listeners to do is the following. We're going to be talking about finishing, finishing what you start. And I think it would be really helpful if you had at the forefront of your mind a project of yours, whether it's a personal project or a professional project. Maybe it's one that you've started and you've paused it for a variety of different reasons. Maybe it's one that you have started and you're actually progressing along, but this can help you finish it faster. Or maybe it's one that you haven't finished at all or haven't started at all, I should say. Either way, bring that to the forefront so that you can immediately apply what we're going to be talking about today to that. So with that as setting the tone for our conversation, welcome, Charlie. Thanks for having me, Jaquette. I am so pumped to be here. And wow, let's get into it. And while we're priming questions, may, may I tweak it just a little bit? Yeah, please do. As you're thinking about those projects, two things. One, in, in our language, a project is anything that takes time, energy, and attention. So don't just think about career projects or don't just think about economic work projects. Think about that trip you want to take or think about that closet of doom that you've been wanting to clean out or think about your life totally. And if it requires time, energy, and attention, it's a project. And I'm going to up the ante a little bit. Think about one of those that really matter to you, right? Because a lot of times we'll choose to do the low hanging fruit or we choose to do the easy stuff. And then we'll end up cluttering up our schedule and cluttering up our time with a bunch of stuff that at the end of the week or the end of the month, then a quarter like is fundamentally unsatisfying. So I would yeah. rather you sort of be thinking about that thing that you keep wanting to get to that your soul calls to, but 
it always seems eternally out of reach. That's the type of project I want you to be thinking about. That's awesome. Thank you for that tweak. Yeah, thank you for that. So in describing what inspired you to write the book, I would love it if you wove into that the story around, not the story, but wove into that your career in the army, um, your PhD studies in philosophy, and then also your family upbringing, because because I know you, I can, I can see how those influenced the book um, and how you approached it. But I also think that those are the elements that made your book very different. Now, granted, I haven't read every productivity book out there, but I've read my share. And the thing that I really appreciated about yours is that it wasn't just mechanical or technical, but it all, was also emotional. And I think that's because of all of those elements that you bring to it. So can you tell our listeners, you know, who you are and, and do it through those lens of those three points, those three elements? Yeah, I really appreciate that feedback too. And that's been the surprising thing for me is how many um, people are commenting that in some ways the book is an anti-establishment book, but I didn't set mm -hmm. out to write that book. Right. right. That, that right. wasn't what I meant to do. But when we sort of look backwards, like, of course, I would write that book. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So I'll sort of start backwards. I grew up, you know, poor and black and in Arkansas in the 80s. And mm -hmm. um, while, well, I won't go too deep in, but it wasn't cool to be poor and black in Arkansas in that. Right. <laughs> uh, and so in many ways, it's, um, it's starting from a place of feeling like I was always the underdog because I was. I was right. always the underdog, always the unlikely candidate to do all the things that I was doing. I was in Boy Scouts. I was in, you know, early leadership training. I was in all of the like smart kid classes, which is definitely not what you do as a poor black kid, right? right. Um, and right. Then given, given norms around that. Um, and so it was always just sort of figuring out like, damn, like, how am I going to get there when I don't have what I need? Like, I don't have the stuff. I don't have generational wealth, right? I don't have, you know, the privileges. Like, doors don't just automatically open for me, right? Right, um, yep. But I still want to do things. Like, I still see that I can do things in this world. How am I right. going to do that? How am I going to piece that together? How am I going to make this work? And um, I think a lot of that informed um, just the ability to like, there are a lot of things that I'm going to want to do. And what's hard about it in that context is it wasn't just what, what was required to do the work, but it was what was required to do the work in the social context that I was in, because there was right. this additional emotional labor. This is additional social labor of, are you going to fit in? Are you going to stand out? And, you know, though I said I'm poor and black, I'm technically multiracial, right? Mm -hmm. So that adds another wrinkle because there's a sense of where you never fit in no matter what you do. Right. Exactly. Uh, you're, you're always on the outside. Right. Um, and so on the one hand, that's a gift because I figured out very early, like no matter what I do, I'm going to be on the outside. So I might as yep. well do what the hell I want to do. <laughs> right. Because um, I'm not going to make these people happy. I'm not going to make those people happy. So right. make myself happy. Right. 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 Uh, all this sort of jazz. And so that sort of informed so much of that. And then as um, you know, I continue to do well in school. I ended up um, being selected to go to West Point and doing that, but deciding that wasn't the right fit for me. Um, and then I went to undergraduate and fell in love with philosophy and fell in love with literature and fell in love with that sort of stuff. And again, for context, I had no idea what the hell philosophy was. I mean, I'd been reading it, but I didn't know it was like a thing that people 
who were actually alive did and definitely people who looked like me right because right. philosophy if anything is the study of old white guys right um <laughs> and so I fell in love with it um and then because I'm from a military family and because I had a very strong um cultivation in the way through the boy scouts I also decided to join the army um mm -hmm. and became an army officer and so I was an army joint force military logistics officer which is a mouthful but it was basically making sure the air force navy and army were on the same sheet of music when it comes to dropping stuff and picking that stuff up and getting it to where it needs to go right um, and so all of that sort of wove together to um, create sort of the background for that. But I started writing formally about productivity or what we might call productivity in the, you know, 2006, 2007 timeframe, because I was simultaneously completing my PhD in philosophy. I was simultaneously pursuing my career in the army. Um, my wife and I had just bought a house and, you know, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of projects people don't tell you about. Right. And so <laughs> I was like, I, I am not able to do all the things that I want to do anymore. Right. right. I can't just brute strength or, you know, brute smart or just like, I can't get my way through this through tenacity like I have in the past. I've got to figure mm -hmm. out smarter and better. Um, right. And so when I, when I started reading all the literature, um, it just didn't fit. It didn't fit on multiple levels. One, one, it didn't talk nearly about the emotional journey of doing creative work and doing work. Mm -hmm. that matters. Mm -hmm. Um, and it also was, it felt really myopic. Um, it, it, you know, at the time I would, it, I would say this now, but I didn't know at the time it felt, it felt very sort of like, you know, white dude, bro right? Just talking mm. about this or, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to make it so much about the racial lens here, but that's what, right. that's what, that's who was writing at the time. Yeah. Right. And that's what mm -hmm. the, that's what framed that conversation. Exactly. Right. And exactly. so it felt very dis divorced from a lot of the things that I actually cared about. Um, and so I started doing, you know, what any scholar or any military officer in training would do. I started writing about it and sharing and teaching other people. Cause I'm like, Hey, if I've fallen in that hole, like incline my way out of it, I can at least tell you that there's a hole there, right? And even better, <laughs> I can help you miss it completely. Right, right. Or if you're in that same hole, I could show you how I got out of it. And so that's right. most of my work is actually falling in a hole and, cl and climbing back out of it and saying, okay, there's a hole there, by the way, and here's how you get out of it, right? Uh, <laughs> which is a particular view of, of how to do this. But that's how it all comes into this book because um, so many of the people that I work with and so many people that, that come to me have either that sense of being an underdog or, you know, they have that mm -hmm. sense of like what they're trying to do. Maybe they're not the right person for. Right. And kind of, I just, it breaks my heart so much how people have an embedded story about how some way or the other they're uniquely defective. Right. And whatever they're trying to do, it won't work because of their, that unique defect. And so they can see other people doing the same thing and say, you know what, that's not going to work for me because I got the thing, right? Right. Um, because right. I'm here. And yeah. it's so heartbreaking because, I mean, either we're all uniquely defective because we all have a thing or none of us are, right? But there's nothing, right. <laughs> there's nothing individually about us. And so... Um, and I wrote it, the other reason I wrote it is because we live in a culture that hangs on to the idea of talent or the, the, the myth talent. And like some people are naturally good at things, mm -hmm. or disposed to do things. And so if 
you want to be a writer, then, you know, if you have that talent, then you can be a writer. If you want to be an artist, if you have that talent, if you have an entrepreneur and it's such bullshit because everything is learnable. Right. Right. And the talent myth is so devastating for many people in our society because we didn't grow up like in an environment that made that talent, right? Talent is really, um, you know, we start looking at prodigies when they're six or seven and things like that, but we don't think about the family construct that they've been in that's them having certain outcomes at six or seven. And if you put many kids in those same environments, guess what? They would have that same quote unquote talent. No, it's just try. It's just training skills, cultivation. And like, so I get super frustrated because by the time we turn, you know, 23, by the time we turn 25, or maybe by the time we turn 45, we have embedded so much of these stories that we then have to work uphill against um, when it's all just an untrue story, right? Now, I'm not trying to say people's past and our lived experience um, have no truth to it, but that belief that, again, we're uniquely defective or we're somehow, you know, fated to be unable to get our shit together or somehow constitutionally wired to struggle. All of those stories just make life so much harder than they need to be and frame how we see what we can do in the world and who we can become. Yeah, it's really interesting because when I hear you talk about the talent myth, one of the first things that comes to mind is our cultural tendency to put athletes on a pedestal or to put certain entertainers on a pedestal, which then amplifies the talent myth because if that's what your reference point is and you're not at that level, then you're like, ah, oh, I don't have it. So <laughs> you kind of like throw your hands up in the air. Yeah. <laughs> Only we're not raising it like we don't care. Exactly. Well, I was going to say it, but I was like, no, nah, I'm going to let that one go. But no. <laughs> It's absolutely the case is that, and and I think in some ways where we are now with social media amplifies that because Mm -hmm. we look at the end of someone's book and compare that to the start of our own. Like we look at someone who's been cultivating a particular skill for a decade or two or three, and that's hidden all of the garbage they've done in the past. Right. Right. Or they're just not what we see. Right. And so we say that and we're like, I could never be that person because we look at our starting point and compare it to their end point. Um, And so that's when we realize how much like, and I know I may be jumping ahead of myself, but we're going to jam with it. Like we have to realize what we see on TV, what we see in social media, what we see basically anytime we look at another human in a public space is a curation of their day, a curation of their life, right? Yeah. It's a rare soul that will show you their dirty laundry every day. Right. Right. We see this curated image that people put for ourselves and we do the same thing, right? I'm not, but when all we see are these curated, pretty, you know, effective, talented pictures of people, we think that that is what is normal. Right. It's not. Those yeah, are the curations, totally. not yeah. all the other ups and downs right. and, you know, um, like not all the zits photoshopped off of whatever. Right. We exactly. Like that's normal and that's human and it's beautiful. Right. right. But we don't see it that way. We don't see it that way. Yeah, totally. So in your book, you present um, a nine step method 
But I actually want us to hone in on slaying the dragons. <laughs> and I don't know if that resonated with me because I was like, oh my God, yes, I'm, I'm in the midst of those myself. Um, but I really want to talk about that. But before we get into that, I think it would be helpful to just kind of go back to the beginning where you defined project as anything that you give time, energy, and attention to, but also differentiate that from an idea, from goals, from tasks, from to-do lists, because I think that that's part of the quandary, right? We kind of conflate those things, and it might be helpful to kind of unpack that. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um... I'll start by saying like the way I understand projects can be simultaneously liberating and oppressive as hell at the same time, right? Because when you realize how much of your day, how much of the stuff that you have in front of you are actually projects and how much stuff you don't count as projects, it can feel in some ways like the earth is sitting, you know, on top of you like, oh, I got all this stuff to do, which it's not like it changed the amount of stuff you had to do. It just had you actually see it. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but the gift of that is that we can start rewiring those stories about not getting stuff done and maybe not being mm -hmm. motivated and maybe not being driven. It's just like, no, you wake up every day and whether you count it or not, 60% of your waking hours are already accounted for right. through laundry through taking yeah. care of cats, through getting kids to school, through the meetings you don't want to be at, to all of the different things that you do, you mm -hmm. wake up every day and that amount of time is already counted for. Right. But we have this weird mental wiring where we wake up and we're like, I got the full day. I got a full <laughs> eight hours of work that I can do. Right. <laughs> Regardless of what's already in your email. Everybody right. was already on your to-do list. Like, right. and it's that weird mental wiring that we have. Right. 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 And so the gift <laughs> of really understanding projects in that way is that we can be more human to ourselves. Yes. And we can yes. make better choices. It's, it would be like, and, and I know I'm talking to a money queen about this. It would be like waking up every morning and pretending that you had $2,000 to spend when you've only got 20 bucks. Right. <laughs> If you've got the $2,000 in your account, but you're not, you're factoring in the checks that you have out there waiting to be called on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so when you, when you spend as if you have more than you got, you end right. up in debt right. and it can be money debt in the way that we normally talk about it. But I also like right. to talk about project debt, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that we take on mm -hmm. more bills in the term of project yep. than right. we have the cash in the term of time, energy, and attention to pay for, right? Yep. Totally. And so, um, so I just want to start with that and just put that out there. Cause some people, when they hear that, they're like, wait a second, hold, hold on, wait a second. And then they're like, see all the cascade. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's real. That's your day every day. Right. Yes. And that's the weight you've been carrying, which of course is why you're overwhelmed, which of yep. course is why you're burned out, which yep. is of course is why you're frustrated. Okay. Now totally. that we've gotten that, what are we going to do about it? Um, so in my sort of way of thinking about it, the project is the work side of things, right? It's how you mm -hmm. take that idea, how you take that goal, how you take that dream or that intention and put it to work. Got it. And for me, if I'm being really technical, if you have a goal that doesn't have a project with it, you have an aspiration. You got something you hmm. want, right? But you don't have a way of bringing that goal to life, right? And there's this, it sounds maybe simple or maybe simplistic, but we don't do ideas. 
We do projects, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. so often we hang on to it like, oh, I've got an idea and we get a new idea. We watch that TED talk and get 17 ideas, right? Right. Then we make that mental switch where it's like, oh, it's a project. It's something I'm doing. I was like, no, it's just an idea, right? It's just an right. idea. You can let it go. You can banish it to the ideas you're not going to do. You can put it in different places. But we don't do ideas. We do projects. Mm-hmm. And because projects require time, energy, and attention, it therefore means that we can only do a limited number of projects. Right. We can hold a practical infinity of ideas, but we can only do a certain amount of projects because right. we're limited to the time, energy, and attention we have available. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's where um, people can love slash hate me because when they say, I've got a goal, like, here's my goal, Jaquette knows, like, the first thing I'm going to ask you, so what's your plan? Like, what do you do? <laughs> right. Do you have a date on yep. it? Right. Um, what are you, <laughs> yeah, what are you I, spending on that? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I really love how in the book you emphasize the importance of not just having an end date, but a start date. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think where we have end dates, that's, that's a great habit, but too few of us use a start date, right? Yes. Because yep. start, the grace of start dates is twofold. One is you can get real about when you're actually going to get to work about that. Right. 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 Um, and so you can have a goal. I'd like an annual goal of like, I want to lose 15 pounds because apparently that's just one that everyone has or a lot of people, <laughs> right? But you can say, but my start date to start working on that goal is April. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have to beat yourself up about all the things you're not doing from January to April, right? It gives you right. that space. And as right. long as you have a good reason of like, well, you know, I'm, I've got all this other stuff going on. You know, I need to get my mom in a elder care scenario. And then I'm uh-huh. You might just look at all your projects and see, like, I can't devote the time it takes, time, energy, and attention to do that right now. Right. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's not important. It just means that my start date is in April. Right. The other thing that it does is it makes you accountable to all the stuff that needs to be done before then, because you can start to see that cascade. If, if you don't get that stuff done, April's going to come and you're going to be looking and you're like, I still don't have time for it. Right. Yeah. Right? Because yep. you didn't finish the projects ahead of it. Right. It's, like, it's, it's almost like one of the things that I've talked about in the past, which is making room for the thing that you want. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's really my goal with the book is, and, and while, why I added a tweak to the start of our episode was I want us to make a wedge for the stuff that matters most to us. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to make that wedge mm-hmm. first because we've all done the thing to where we've tried to knock out a whole bunch of things. Right. And then we get a whole bunch more things and then we get a whole bunch of more things and we keep like, there's not that space ever for us to work on that thing that matters to us. Right. And so if we accept that that's going to be the way things continue to be, right. then we can stop pretending right. that like you can just keep on knocking out the low hanging fruit. And then someday automatically there's going to be that day where you get to work on that thing that matters. That ain't going to exactly. happen. Right. So let's start today. Right. Right. Because right. three months from now, three years from now, three decades from now is not going to be a better damn time. Right. Right. Yep. You make the time better. Right. Yeah. And it, to me, the parallel that I draw in terms of, you know, you know, getting people to change some of their behaviors and mindset when it comes to money is to recognize that whatever you do with what you have now is exactly what you'll do when you have more. So if you want to do something differently with more that you're going to get in the future, you got to start that now. Like you're not yeah. going to magically like, I have more and magically I'm going to be doing something different or I'm going to be a different person. No, you got to start working on that in this moment. (laughs) 
<laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, that's funny though, because I was thinking um, last week that like I am one of those souls that like the more resources I have, the more prudent I become, <laughs> right? I, I get more scroogey, the more resources I have. Right? <laughs> so, part of that is because I know that too much of a resource makes you stupid. Right. right? Uh, yeah. So whatever that is, if you got too much time, right. you're going to squander it. Right. If you got too much yes. money, you're going to squander it. Right. And right. so I know that tendency. So I'm like, I got a lot of it. How am I right. going to squander it? I ain't doing it. Right. right. So, <laughs> um, but that's just because I know myself and I've noticed what I've done when I've gotten a resource is that right. I've squandered it and made stupid choices and then gotten ghetto rich. Right. Um, and this is not doing it again. Um, but so the funny thing is that if we really get real about what's going on with certain types of work, the work that matters, the work that I call your best work or your best work mm -hmm. project, mm -hmm. there's this thing going on, Jaquette, where um, on the one hand, your soul like yearns to do it and you most want to do it. And on the other hand, you don't do it because you're scared of it. Yes. Right? Yep. Um, and so we think, and, and, and this is why trying to solve your schedule with low hanging fruit to make room for this bigger thing this is why it automatically fails because right. you're fundamentally talking about two different kinds of things. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the reason the work that matters most to you, and I'm just going to give some examples, right? Because it's helpful for people like starting that business, getting married, going on that around the world trip, um, mm -hmm. starting that nonprofit, taking on that new job that stretches you in ways that make you uncomfortable. Um, you know, finally figuring out what to do with your inheritance that you've been sitting mm -hmm. on for years and you didn't know what to do with it. Like mm -hmm. I can give a bunch of different examples, but all of those things um, matter more to you. And then I call it thrashing. Um, mm -hmm. I call the, the emotional flailing and sort of the meta work and the running around and like thinking about it, but not actually doing anything. I call it thrashing. And mm -hmm. it's counterintuitive because the more something matters to you, the more you'll thrash. Right. Right. And we don't yeah. address that because no one thrashes about taking out the, taking out the garbage or doing right. dishes, right? Or, right. or going to get groceries for anything. We may not want to do it, but it's not a mini right. existential crisis, right? Right. Yeah. But this type of best work and these types of best work projects, they matter to us because we make them be about something about our identity. Yep. Absolutely. If they fail or you make a mistake on them, it means yep. something. Yep. Right? Um, yep. it means something to how you present yourself into the world. Or if you try something that you've been wanting to do for three years and you fail, then what does that mean about you? Like yep. maybe you're not the type of person. We don't want to confront that. Right. And so we continue to put it off and we can continue to do the quote unquote research. Right? <laughs> um, we do all the busy work. We do all the busy work. We continue to have all of the conversations, right? Um, I'm also an executive coach. And so it's funny because there are certain times where there are certain of my clients, I'm like, you need to stop talking to people about this because it's <laughs> your way of telling yourself you're making progress on this. Right. But you're no further ahead than you were three months ago. Right. Right. Um, stop talking, start doing. What's the yes. next choice that you need to make? And I'm going right. to pause there because like when we get stuck in that research or that conversation or that thinking about phase, we too quickly confuse certainty with clarity. Yes. Right. Yes. And so people yes. are like, well, I'm just trying to get clear and I'm trying to like, make sure that I know what I'm doing. And it's like, actually, no, mm -hmm. you're trying to increase your certainty that what you're going right. to do is going to work. Right. Right. But this type of stuff that we're talking about, um, 
does not come with a certainty um, guarantee with it, right? Yeah. In fact, <laughs> the things that matter the most are going to be going to create the most uncertain outcomes for you. They will change your life in ways right. that you don't know and can't right. foresee. And that yep. scares us. But what we tell ourselves is that we're trying to get more clarity, right? Um, and we're not honest about the fact that honestly, we're scared mm -hmm. and we're trying to be more certain that the choice we're about to make is the right one. Right. Um, yeah. And what I found um, in 99% of cases, the worst choice is no choice. Yep. Right. Of just sitting there and waiting for that time and waiting for that clarity. Now there are certain times where it makes sense, right? You don't want to go and spend, I'm, I noticed that I'm, I'm framing so much of it is about money because of, because, because of you, it's all your fault. Right. But no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's part of what we talk about here. Right. Um, you know, obviously if you have a lot of money, making a bad investment or a bad a bad choice on that in one fell swoop like yeah like maybe take your time and figure out the right thing to do on that so yes take some more time figure that out but a lot of the choices that really really matter to us are not of that type right um there's these mundane everyday magical decisions there's little courage points where you could have done x but you did y because it was a safer choice right. or you could have put up a boundary but you decided not to or, you know, you could have put in a little bit more grit, a little bit more, you know, a little bit more elbow grease, but you were tired and decided not to, right? right? All of those little everyday moments add up. Right. Um, and those are the ones that I'm starting to talk about or that I want mm -hmm. us to talk about because we tend to think that the distance between where we are and that big, bold life that we want to live is like this huge leap mm -hmm. when it's just a tiny, a bunch of tiny little steps, little caterpillar right. steps towards that overdone consistently over a lifetime, over a decade, over a year that leads you where you want to go. And it's not at all sexy, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's the widget. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the two things I always say, um, small is significant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's always sometimes the non-sexy thing that, you know, makes you the most. Like you think about a manufacturing plant. It's that darn, you know, I, don't, I, I guess I shouldn't have used that as an example because I don't really know the, 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 the things that things are called. <laughs> but I'm thinking, of a car, I'm thinking of manufacturing a car and you got that little small widget thing and it's like <laughs> not the sexiest thing, but it holds the sexy thing together. But that's the piece that makes that manufacturing plant the most money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... Well, and it's kind of like, you know, you wrote a post for Productive Flourishing. It was a great post on cash flow, right, <laughs> mm -hmm. for, for small business. But I would explain it for all of us. Like, if you learn to master cash flow, personal or business, like, it opens up so much of your world, right? Right. But it's unsexy, right? It's, yes. It's super, yeah. like, where is the, where's the money coming? Where is it going and it, on a timeline? Like, it's more than that. But it's not something that any of us, when we're thinking about, you know, changing our lives and we're thinking about filling that gap between where we're <laughs> it's like oh you know i'm gonna wake up the next tomorrow morning and i'm finally gonna figure out the cash flow in my situation right and make it not work it's never that right, right? yeah but at the end of the day when we look at what's not working guess what it is cash flow <laughs> is that <laughs> <laughs> so 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 true so I think that's a perfect segue into the dragons. And I just want to read this from the book so I get it right. 
and it's from chapter three. And your sentence here says, dragons aren't a signal that we're on the wrong road, but rather that we're on the right road. And that just made me, again, stop in my tracks. <laughs> um, and it made me stop in my tracks for a couple of things. One, because I think typically when you, when you think about dragons, either from books that you've read or from movies that you've seen, it is this thing that is scary. It's almost like David and Goliath, right? The bigger the thing is, the more afraid of it you are. And so it does stop you. So to reframe it and to say, no, it's really an invitation to really think about, well, actually, might this be an indication that you're on the right road? That was just like, wow, that's so revelatory. <laughs> and then the two things that you kind of honed in on as being, quote unquote, the dragons to slay, also, again, I thought the reframing of that, at least how I read it, was very interesting. And that was the notion of failure and the notion of displacement. So can we talk about um, how when you say failure is about alignment and displacement is about choices? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I appreciate that too, because, um, you know, not to go, I don't know which way I was going to say go with that, but like when we look at stories, anytime there's, there's like a dragon or anything like that, what you have to remember is that, metaphorically speaking that dragon is the transformative tool from that person to go from one state to whatever a hero or supernatural state that they're going to go to that is how we right. develop right? right and so dragons are always symbols in in literature of that way of the main danger that prevents someone from achieving their full self uh or their full potential right okay um and i'm going to start in a weird way by talking about envy um and and here's what's really interesting we're not envious of people when they have things we don't want we're only envious of people right. who have things that they want uh, that we want and so in mm -hmm. in many ways though we try to stamp it out though we try to do all those types of things envy is actually a bit of a compass that tells you that whatever you're envying is important to you Right. Right. You can disregard right. that. You can try to make a rational argument. You can try to like be super spiritual and sort of like pray it away. But at the end of the day, that envy, whatever you're envious of is a compass to something that matters to you. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, and so in a similar way, that dragon is a compass that it's in front of something that matters to you because if it weren't, you wouldn't care about it. Right. Right. Yep. Um, you know, I don't want to be a world-class accountant. So I don't see whatever it would take to be in front of being, being a world-class accountant as a dragon. It doesn't matter to me. It's irrelevant. Right. right? It's not right. where I'm trying to go. Right. right. There are other places where I'm trying to go where there's, you know, quite a few, you know, dragons sitting there and I'm like, oh, crap. Right. Um, right. Right. So it's that relevance that it has in the path that, mm -hmm. that is a compass for what matters to you. And so that's why I say it's probably a clue that you're going the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, so failure about being alignment. Again, I think because of stories and head trash that we sort of accumulate along the way, we too often make a failure, a character mistake. Yes. Right. Yep. Um, so I yep. failed there. Does it mean mm -hmm. that there was this event that happened that had this outcome? 
we mm-hmm. make it more about who we are and what we're yes. able to do and sort of we make it about our character rather than about the context. Okay. Right. And so when you let go of that idea and understand that a failure is a moment in time to where things were not in alignment. You didn't mm-hmm. have the resources that you needed. Maybe it wasn't a true priority. Maybe and by true priority, um, there are a lot of priorities that we take on that are other people's priorities. Right. Right. There are stuff other people want us to do. Mm-hmm. And then when it gets hard, we start realizing we're going to have to, they, those priorities come against our true priorities mm-hmm. and our true priorities win. <laughs> right. And right. so, um, you know, there could be a misalignment of approach, misalignment of resources, misalignment of like, you just don't have the wrong, the right people with you. Right. right? A misalignment of effort. Like you thought it was going to be easy. It wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and right. You, know, um, you were the David without the sling that ran up against Right. And that does not end well. Right. right. Um, mm-hmm. So you misjudge the difficulty of it. So there's all these ways where you could just think about it. It was a misalignment in time. Right. But it doesn't mean that this thing that I want to do is going to be misaligned in those same ways. And, right. you know, throughout the book, I start talking about how to get other things in alignment. So for whatever your project is, you can overcome whatever mm-hmm. um, the misalignment was. You know, I didn't know I was going to talk about this because that's how this happens, but I was listening to an audio book um, on the history of strategy. And throughout um, the broad conversation about strategy, there's been two poles of strategy. There's been like, or there's been tolls, um, polls on the forces that we use when we develop strategy. One is just brute force, being mm-hmm. stronger and more powerful. And the second is, um, being wily or being ingenuitive or, or being sort of that. And so we can sort of kind of see this in the contrast between Achilles, who's the brute mm-hmm. force, and mm-hmm. Odysseus, who is the wily sort of strategist. The smart, that, that's why we call him the, the strategist. He's that. Right. Right. And a lot of times when we start having some of these misalignments, in my experience, it's like we've tried to apply some sort of brute force model <laughs> and it hasn't worked. Right. Um, right. Where we needed to be more Odysseus right. um, and less Achilles. And then there are right. other times where we went in there, we tried to be super crafty. And it was really one of those things like, no, you actually just need to get your head down and do this. Right. 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 Um, right. Yeah. And, and so you kind of have to think about how you're applying your different resources to different scenarios. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. you can walk in and Achilles the crap out of it. And that's great. Right. 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 Other times right. you've got Odysseus to crap out of it. Right. 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 Go. So failure, in my view, is just that misalignment in time where there just weren't the things that needed to be in place to make it happen. It's not about you. Right. Right. It's about so that scenario, though, you yeah. know, that context. Yeah. Um, so once you do that, like, I think it helps when you're like, oh, well, you know, I've got either a string of failure or I tried to do it that one time. Mm hmm. Which is such a weird thing because like we are two, like when we look back at ourselves two weeks ago, we are today more powerful than we were two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. There's no real reason to assume that two weeks from now, we're not going to be more powerful than we are today. And we can sort of stretch out that time horizon, right? We're stronger than we were two years ago. We're right. stronger in the sense of wisdom or experience or intelligence or know-how. Maybe it's we've accrued resources. Maybe we've got right people around us. Maybe we've just done things. Mm-hmm. Years ago, we were not able to do. Right. Right? Right. And so 
I just say that because a lot of times we look at those experiences. Well, five years ago, I tried something. Two years ago, I tried something. I was like, that was you then, <laughs> right? <laughs> We're talking about you now. Right, 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 right. But, you know, as, as someone, I mean, we've all failed, but as, as someone who failed at something in, in a public way, it's so hard when you go back out there and you try it again. Even though what I've realized is, hell, I need to give myself credit for trying it again. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of gifted failure. There is a lot. <laughs> and even, even sort of like epic for real failures. Right. Like you come out, you can can yes. come out of those so much stronger than before them. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell folks to go out there and have a few epic failures. Not going back. <laughs> but even if you've done that, like right. think of everything that you learned, because when you go through one of those types of failures, you end up in this place where you're like, you know, it can't get any worse than what it is. And then you realize it can get a lot worse than what you thought it could get. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so there are times like, um, because I was deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom, like it, it's been a really useful sort of frame of reference for me. Because sometimes when I'm wanting to do something that feels scary, I'm like, I'm not getting shot at today. I know with, <laughs> right. with as near certainty that I'm going to live today and that I'm not going right. to be writing letters home to my soldiers' families. Right. What's the worst that's going to happen to me? I look right. like an idiot? Right. Well, I have enough of a track record of not looking like an idiot that it's going to be an aberration. Right. Exactly. And yep. even if I do look like an idiot, so what? Yep. I get the next day to undo my idiocy. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Totally. So I, I think an epic failure can be like that in a way. It's like, well, it's not. You know, I'm not being trolled on national media. So, <laughs> okay, we'll call that exactly. a win. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and, and so again, when failure is just about misalignment, I think it really helps us shift the conversation to like, okay, what does need to be in alignment? Mm -hmm. And how do yep. I get that in alignment? Right. As opposed that, to I'm a failure, or there's something uniquely wrong with me, or that past failure has anything to do beside anything negative to do with what I'm trying to do now. Yeah, I, I found so valuable a um, disconnecting the failure with us personally. A, and then B, I think in the process of doing that, when it comes to doing whatever comes next, it's easier to apply, well, then what did I learn? Like, if you can take a step back and be objective, okay, yeah, it failed. And why do we normally say something failed? Because it didn't deliver the results or the outcome that we wanted. Okay, but what did I learn in that process? And, and then whatever you know, you tick off as things that you learned in that process. How do you integrate that or apply that to whatever it is that you're going through or going to start next? And so then it's almost like, well, it's, I don't want to be Pollyannish and say, oh, it didn't fail, but it just, it really does, I think, change going back to the word relationship, your relationship to both how you are defining and describing something, but then also your relationship to the event or the thing that didn't, you know, come to fruition in the way you wanted or planned. Absolutely. I want people to live in the tension of one, I failed. Two, mm -hmm. it was a learning opportunity. Right. Both are true at the same time. Right. right. Exactly. Um, as long as you don't understand I failed equals I am a failure. Right. right. What right. I failed means is what I was trying to do, I did not do. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I right, did not exactly. do that Just thing. own it. Just own it, right? <laughs> it's kind of like, right. 
it's it's funny because um you can imagine this may not hmm, I'm, I'm thinking of the time i was i was going to think of i was going to give a, a shooting metaphor but i don't think i want to we'll do basketball right i want you okay right now just given where we are in the world right now um it would be like you know you shoot the basketball and you don't mm-hmm. hit right right you miss it rolls around and pops out that's a statement that's like true of the world you tried you did not do it right right exactly There's nothing wrong with that right right um well if you've been a trained professional and you've been doing it for 30 years and you missed the free throw in the, you know, championship final, like maybe that's a different sort of deal, but most of our normal shots are just like, right. didn't hit it. But we apply so much of the story around yeah. it, especially when it's creative or knowledge work, mm-hmm. because we assume again, that because we know how to do something cognitively or creatively, that it's going to end up in some perfection. But I really like for us to think about it from terms of like batting averages. Like if you have a 35 um, or a mm-hmm. 0.35 RBI, which means mm-hmm. uh, basically every three pitches that someone sends you, you're able to get on base. Like that's really good for professional exactly. players. Yep. So they get two out of every three times to miss completely. Right. <laughs> Nothing exactly. Happens. Right. And as long as they get that one out of every three, they're golden. What if we gave ourselves that same expectation, that same permission when it comes to the work that really matters is cognitive, creative, emotional, social work, where we approach a situation and it's like, I didn't hit that one. Oh, I didn't hit that one. Oh, but I hit that one. I got my, I got my, my one third. I'm good to go. Right. I think it makes more room for us to be a little bit more courageous. I think it makes room for us to really try to become better versions of ourselves because we don't have to do it a hundred percent right. Yeah, I love that analogy. And as a huge Yankee fan, I really love that analogy. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh-huh. Oh my God, because sometimes you're not all, you know, I mean, I, I guess I can't say this for certain, but I would think that every time you go to the plate, perhaps the goal isn't to hit a home run. Yeah. And yet we, ex- we expect that in the things that we do, that every single time we step up to our proverbial plate, that it's going to be a home run. And perhaps if we just kind of let that go a little bit, that would be a little bit more generous to ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I'll give a specific example to this because um, as I was thinking through publishers and who I might publish this book with, one of the ways I sort of thought about, I thought about it was like, which, which publisher is going to make me want to come up to bat in the first place and which one is going to be much more likely to keep me on the field longer. Right. Right. Um, And because there are different choices that can be made, there are some like you get one, one shot, you hit it or you don't. And that's it. Right. 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 Um, And it's very sort of rigid in that way. But, you know, as I started thinking about it, I was like, no, I want to work with a partner and be in a partnership such that, I one want to come up to bat in the first place, and I'm not super scared about that. Right. And two, that we have a relationship such that it's about staying on the field and doing mm-hmm. work, um, yes. seeing how those lead to the wins that we're going after, as opposed to you know you get one strike or you get right. one ball and right. one pitch, and you got to hit it out or you don't. Right. Right. So I think too few of or too many of us um, try to go for those wild shots. Mm-hmm. When it comes to some of our work and mm-hmm. i would just want to say like what can you do such that you want to be you know um you want to be at bat and you can 
successfully leverage single base runs into home runs. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, because that's, it's been shown time and time again is how you win. <laughs> right? right. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, so that's where you, you've heard me talk about the sort of go big, go home, uh -huh. um, thing, which can frustrate the crap out of me so much. Like I understand where it's coming from, but mm -hmm. sometimes how we interpret that is put everything all on this thing and you know you either win or you don't and i'm like there's ways for us to be human and and be more moderate and to be more thoughtful where we win in the long term without burning ourselves out and burning our communities out and burning our people out um and still you know don't end up in that scenario because i think those go big go home things is what keep people on the couch they, they stay home Right. right, because because they're like, oh my God, those are my only two choices. <laughs> those are my only two options, right? No, right. you, you right. can go slow, right? Um, right. That's an yeah. option. We don't talk yeah. about it, right? right. Um, but you can totally get off the couch and go slow, right? Yep. And so, and you know, whether we're talking about creative work or whether they're talking about weight loss goals, people are like, man, I need to lose thirty pounds, and they tell me I got to lose thirty pounds in such a amount of time, and I can't do it. So, lose a pound a month, right? right? Yeah. Do it over three years. Better yep. than doing nothing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right? And so yeah. I think we worry too much about how fast we're going and not enough about the progress we're making. God, I so Different love things. that. Yeah. So you, um, I have a couple of more, I have a lot more questions, but just in the interest of time, I want to ask uh, just two more questions. And one, the, uh, one of the other things that I really appreciated about your book and I think also just kind of amplifies even just the point you've just made right now about the human aspect of it is creating levels of success. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to us about how the creating of those different levels of success can help us slay the dragons? Absolutely. Um, you want me to let go of talking about displacement because I realized that that was up in the air too. Oh no, let's not do that because that's important. <laughs> I don't want to tell you how to run the show, but I was like, okay, I answer that one because yeah, 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 yeah. No, so thank you for that. Thank you for that. No, let's definitely talk about displacement because I thought that that was seeing that as um, if I make one choice, that means I'm not making another choice and being deliberate about that. I, I really did. Um, that really resonated with me. So let's absolutely touch on that. And then we'll talk about the levels of success. All right. I'll be brief on this one or as brief as, as maybe useful. Um, so displacement is what it sounds like. Um, doing one thing displaces your ability to do anything other, anything else. Right. And we know that on a very visceral sort of day-to-day -day level, but we don't think exactly. about it at, you know, the weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly level. And we don't realize that these you know, um, rabbit trails that we've been on, these bright, shiny objects we've been chasing and these other people's priorities that we've been dealing with have displaced us doing the work that matters most to us. And so it's just really one of those things. We understand that we only have so much time, energy, time, energy, and attention in a day. And mm -hmm. when it comes to your best work projects, I'm not even going to say we have eight hours a day. Most people have about four hours a day where they can really focus on something in a deep way and move progress on it. So you have four hours. If you feel that full of email and social media and, you know, hanging out with your friends, not saying there's anything wrong with hanging out with your friends, but sort of that idle work or is that non-work mm -hmm. off that four hours and you are not yep. getting them back. Exactly. Right. Um, exactly. You can't get them back later that evening because you're going to be in the wrong energy. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. So you've just lost it. So the gift of displacement is that it 
once it really reveals the constraints that we have as humans, right? And that there's only so much you're going to be able to do in a given day. Your reach right. will always exceed your grasp. Right. So the question then becomes, what are you grasping? What are you choosing to hold on to? And what are you choosing to let go? Because you don't have the choice not to do that. Anytime you make a choice, anytime you take an action, you have thereby chosen not to do a lot of other things. And so, um, you know, this is why people love and hate existentialist philosophy, right? Because you're gripped with a sense of like everything you do is a choice, right? <laughs> Choosing not to choose, also a choice. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Just like no answer is an answer. <laughs> no answer is an answer. And so that, that can feel like, oh, damn, life is hard, but also that's life, right? Right. What, are you, what choices are you making? And so I'll talk a little bit about the five projects rule later on in the book, which is the idea that at any given time perspective, that is a week or a month, a quarter, a year, you have five projects of that size that you can be working on. No more than five of that size. Mm -hmm. You can't do more than five monthly size projects in a given month. We know right. that's not going to work. Don't believe me? Look at your to-do list. Okay, thank you. Right. Right? Um, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So the choice then becomes, what five things am I going to do? Right. Right? What am I unwilling to let slip on me? Right. Right? And what am I willing, you know, to say, you know what? I didn't do that. I didn't get to it. It didn't matter as much to me. And right. I, I think the more we can hone, we can accept our priorities and we can accept our values and just legit be able to say, you know what? I wasn't able to do that. It didn't matter as much to me. Right. It wasn't a priority. There's a lot of freedom in that. Whew, yeah. <laughs> and so we focus on the things that matter most and don't end up at the end of the week where it's like, I did all the other things and now I'm frustrated and mad because the things that were actually, you know, I, well, it's really about priority and value integrity. Because I think a lot of that frustration and resentment comes from when you look at the choices that you've made and the things that you've said are important to you. You see that, and, and you haven't done the work, you know, that, that relates to the things that are important to you. Then you start to get to the point where it's like, what's, what's the problem here? Is, do I really not believe that? Or is there something else going on? So I think when you dig two or three levels under that resentment and frustration. Um, yes, it's about scheduling. Yes, it's about time management and prioritization. But it's really about, are we the people we say we are? Because it doesn't show up in my schedule. Yeah, and I think it's also about learning to get really honest with ourselves about what we have the bandwidth for. Um, because I'll, you know, I'll think about my coaching days. If I've got three or four coaching sessions, that's four hours, three or four hours. Really, how much more else am I going to get done? Because it's, 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 that, it takes a lot of energy out of me. <laughs> well, there's extroverted and it's holding people's world. Like that's a right. lot to do, right? And so I'm yeah. the same way. Like Thursdays tends to be uh, my heavy coaching days. And usually I have three meetings. The uh -huh. only thing I do besides coaching for that day is make sure that I eat a good breakfast. Right. Because I know those three, sometimes four meetings, like I'm going to be done. Right. right. Um, exactly. And so to pretend that I'm going to wake up early, I'm going to do some creative work. I'm going to make that strategy. I'm going to write that post. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to do, right? right. I know damn well what's going to happen at the end of the day. <laughs> right. One, I'm going to do it or, and suffer somewhere. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. Cause I'll be burned out and my last client is going to get not the best. <laughs> they're not going to get what they paid for. 
right? Um, or I'm just going to need to eat a good breakfast and do my meetings, and that's all I'm going to have the bandwidth for. Then I'm going to have exactly. that, that residue and that guilt of those things that I knew. And that's where I anymore my frustration when I look at that is like, I know better. Right. I know better. Right. This is what I teach. Why did I do that? Right. right. Um, I, I could be frustrated, but I can also be like, okay, I was an idiot in the morning because I'm an idiot in the morning sometimes. Okay. Next. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. So, so yeah, displacement is, can be really helpful because um, and there's, there's one other thing that, and I got this from Stuart Brand via Kevin Kelly via Tim Ferriss, which I know is a long sort so of way, way of right. getting it. But um, Stuart says that any really meaningful project is going to take five years to see through. Right. Um, any real meaningful project, whether that's a business, whether that's a new career, whether that's, you can put it in so many different frames and we might disagree whether it's five years or three years, like, don't worry uh -huh. so much about that. But what I thought about is like, let's assume, you know, that we're going to live into 85. You take your mm -hmm. age, subtract it from 85, divide by five. That's how many significant projects you have left in your life. Right. Right. Yeah. I saw that in, I read that yeah. in the book and I was, I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah. And and so I, and are the choices that, that you're making today, would you look back at the end of your life and say, I'm glad I did that project versus right. another one? Exactly. Yeah. It, it certainly helps to um, prioritize what matters to you or give yourself permission to change. Mm -hmm. Like Absolutely. if something was, you know, important to you and now other factors have emerged and you've decided, no, it's no longer at the top of my list or it's no longer on my list at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I go through that myself with, um, I am a near PhD in philosophy because I haven't finished my dissertation. And a few years ago, um, I made the mistake on election day, 2016 to inquire with my university, uh, like a few days before that to inquire with, with my university about what my deadline was. And I got back on, on election day, 2016, which was a really tumultuous day for many of us. Right. Yes. Um, that I had until the end of the following year to finish it. Oh my God. And I was like, there, there, there ain't a way. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and, and so I'm riding here on the bus. I get to email and I'm riding on the bus and sort of that, that sense of like, oh, what am I going to do? But five seconds after that was actually a sense of relief. And this huh. where I was like, you know, the reality is it has not been a priority. This work that I've been doing, this work that has me on this bus right now has been what matters most. And there's no world in which I would have changed my priorities to right. focus on that. Right. So I may have to lay in this bed of not having a new PhD. It turns out that um, it's a university and universities thrive, or there's always a way to buy your way back in. So right. I'll just leave it at that, right? Um, right. And so, but I'm like, you know, if, at the end, if I get to the end of next year and I have this book done and I have some of these other things that really matter to me done versus getting to the end of next year and all this stuff undone and that's done, I would not want that world to be. So I'm like, okay, right. that's the thing. I got to finish these projects and get them done. And if I get them done, then I can think about that because then I'll have priority room for it. But right now it just lost a case match. That's, right. Yeah. That's the, the thing that I like about, so A, thank you for sharing that because that was one of the other questions that I had. Um, but the thing that I also love about that is it teaches us to get into the habit of having a parking lot perhaps for those projects that might shift and you might put back on the burner, if you will, 
once those other things are done. So at the end of this year, you'll, you'll, you'll reevaluate and maybe it'll come back on the list or maybe not, but you didn't, you didn't just abandon it. You just put it in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. I just put it in the parking lot. And you know, my wife and I have had plenty of conversations because as we started making strategic choices for this year, and I think many of us, when we think of on the personal side or the business side or the career side, we don't acknowledge how emotional strategic planning can be Yes, because you have to let go of some things that you notionally care about and you have right. to decide I'm not going to do some of those. And there's a grieving process that if you don't do it, my, my view is you're not actually doing strategic planning because right. everything ends up back on the plate and you tell yourself a bullshit story that you're going to be able to do way more than you can do. Right. When you really get clear about what can, what capacity you have, there are going to be some things that you care about that you're not going to be able to do. And right. so as Angela and I were having some conversations about how we were going to prioritize our efforts for the years for the business and our money and, and things like that. That was one of those things where I had to say, you know, I'm willing to make these choices as long as we have an agreement that even if at some point, if I need to start all over again, right. With my graduate studies, that right. we make room for that. Right? right. And we will make that a priority. Then I'm okay with saying it's not a priority now. Right. And it's just one of those ways of saying like, okay, this is where we are. This is clearly what matters now. I can come back to this other one that maybe doesn't matter as much and then make that the priority. Right. Um, as opposed to trying to pretend that I can do everything because I can't. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's just the reality of being human. Okay. So let's um, talk about the success levels and how they can help us with slaying the dragons. Um, and then what do you want listeners to do after listening to us? So cool. Levels of success. Um, we too often think in terms of success or failure, mm -hmm. and there are degrees of success. Um, and so I list three different degrees. Um, one is small success, um, which is what it sounds like. Like you achieved your mm -hmm. goal, you didn't knock it out. Of, like it wasn't a huge home run. You may not call and tell your mama about it. Right. Mm -hmm. But you succeeded and right. that's worth celebrating in its own right. Right. Moderate success is, um, you know, you had a really great success. It um, is something noteworthy, something to be proud of. But again, still might not be that Oprah moment for you. Still might not be that, you know, run around the house and scream like a wild chicken, right? Sort of moment, right? And then you have the, the upper tier, which is, you know, um, epic success, or if you're not a millennial, extreme success, right? Um, <laughs> and that is that sort of thing where it happens and you just feel like your life has changed. Like right. whatever you've known will never like you, you can't go back to that. It's that Oprah moment. It's that whatever version of the Oprah moment you have um, right. in your career or in your life, that's it. Right. Um, and the beauty of thinking in terms of levels of success, you got to remember, you can choose what level you're going after. Right. And there may be some things that you do, a lot of things that you do that you're like, you know what? I just want some small successes. I want to mm -hmm. do my thing. I want to put points on the board, but it's not the thing that I want to, you know, swing for the fences on. Mm -hmm. There could be some moderate successes too, where it's like you put in a little bit more effort, you know, it works out for you, so on and so forth. Um, but I think what we too often do is we try to make everything an epic success. We try to shoot right. for that level everywhere and it doesn't right. work. You try to right. be super mom, super wife you know, right. super career person, super community builder, you know, super person in the church, you know, and you're just super right. everywhere and just gasping out of breath everywhere. Right. 
and there's just a trail of dropped balls and broken promises yeah. and, you know, nights with a lot of champagne and wine, not champagne, right. a lot of wine um, to follow, right? Right. And so what we have to remember is if you want epic success, you typically have to put in epic effort. Mm-hmm. And if you're not willing to put in epic effort, maybe choose something different, right? Don't try to get in that place where you think that you can be the LeBron James of your thing without doing the work that LeBron James has done to be LeBron James, right? Right. right. Um, and I think that's what we, that's the trap. Because if you set out and say, you know what? Um, it's kind of like what we we're talking about with the um, RBI. It's like, if you want to be a successful, you know, like a third of the time with whatever you're doing and you're successful a third of the time, ain't nothing to be mad about that, right? That's right. what you set out to do, right. right? It's only when you set out to be championship level or extreme or epic level and you don't hit it um, and you don't, you know, invest behind that, that you can be like, well, I'm super frustrated. And so right. um, the other thing to think about too is um, you can't achieve epic success by yourself. Yes. You have to have a pack of people around you. I call it a success pack, but you have to have a people around you helping you get there. Because if you can do it all by yourself, at best, it's only a moderate success. Right. At best. Right. But if you really want epic, epic success, you have to build that team. You yep. have to show up that way. You have to be vulnerable. You have to make courageous choices. Yep. You have to stick with it over the long term. You have yep. to set up boundaries. You have to invest. And I'm making that have to super hard because I think going back to what I said earlier about failure, we don't align our effort. We don't align those things well enough. And then we don't get the goal. We don't reach the goal when we make it about us as opposed to, did you do the work? Right. Did you build a pack? Did right. you put the resources behind it? Did you show up? Right. Right. Um, so um, that's why it's super helpful because again, you can look at whatever you're doing and maybe you're like, well, I want to write a book. Awesome. What level of success you're going after you? You want to finish the book, push it on Amazon, self-publish it. You're not super concerned about how much it sells, but you're really trying to get it out. That's a, maybe a moderate success because writing a book is hard if you've ever done it or if you haven't mm -hmm. done it. If you've done it, you know it's hard. If you haven't done exactly. it, it's harder than it looks, y'all. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but maybe that's just a goal. Maybe you're not trying to be a bestseller, New York Times bestseller. Maybe you're not trying right. to get Michelle Obama to write the foreword of your book, right? Right. Ain't nothing wrong with that, right? That's right. your goal. And the last thing I'll say on this is as you grow and evolve, what was epic to you one day may be a small success another day, right? In your journey. Yeah. Um, and it also goes the other way. As you age, some things that may have been a small success before become an epic success now. I can't do 27 pull-ups right now, right? When I was 17, <laughs> I could, right? Right, um, right. You know, I'm good with a good 12. I'll call it a day. <laughs> um, but as we change, evolve and bring on different capabilities and lose some capabilities, what you thought was epic or small or moderate may change with it. And there's a lot of grace to that. Yes. Because if you've been hanging on to one of those projects and you're like, ah, like I can't do it. Like you may decide that all you needed to change was the level of success that you were going after. Right. Right. Um, and it can make all the difference. Cause like, oh, I can do that. I couldn't do right. this other thing. And again, I, since I've talked about the dissertation, I got stuck around that myself with my dissertation because I was like, I had set it up that it needed to be some novel, like game-changing dissertation that set up my career, you know, that really made me known in, in, in my field and things like that. And that's not what a dissertation has to be. 
It's yeah. just evidence that you can perform a scholarly work or that you can produce a scholarly right. work. And I'm like, well, damn, why didn't nobody tell me that when I was back in school? <laughs> right? Um, this is what happens right. when a military officer goes and does these type of things. There's, there's, there's only anything. There's only that highest bar. And I was like, well, sh crap, if I would have known that, right. I could have made different choices right. right, and been done with it already. Right. Because turns out I don't need for it to build a career for me. Right. Exactly. I've got another career. Right. Right. Um, it, right. It, had, it had a different, it has a different meaning now. So going yep. back to it, if I decide to do it, I'm not going to go for that epic goal of, you know, it doesn't have to get me a teaching gig at Harvard or right. at Oxford, any of those like, yeah, I want it done. Yeah. Right? Not, not yep. because I want it done for other people. I want it done for me. Exactly. Right? That's all it has yeah. to do. Yep. I told I am totally there with you on that one. I had an interest in doing my PhD as well, and I wanted it to be an exploration of anthropology and behavioral finance. Um, and just have maybe I will do it, but thus far haven't for the precise reasons. It was just like I don't want to be a professor inside a school, so I don't want to go that particular route. I don't think I need it to, you know, submit my uh, level of, I guess, notoriety in my space, but I'm just curious about how those things intersect. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and that's what I came to because at the time when I started Productive Flourishing, one of the priority or tension points was I could spend a year, 18 months working on a dissertation that six people will read. Um, four of whom I paid to read, right? <laughs> right. Um, and my wife, right? And so that's, that's a limit of the stretch right. of work, right? Or I could spend that same amount of time that if I do the work and if I get it right, will actually help thousands of people. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, help them do the things that they most want to do. Help them do everything that I want people to do as a philosopher. Right. Right. To, to thrive to right. live their best life, to leave something impactful on this planet with the limited time they have here. That's what I want people to do as the philosopher. Right. Turns out the best way to do that is over on the side of what I'm actually doing, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so yeah. that's why when I said I would never make those choices again, again, year and a half of my life to have, you know, a small number of people read it and not really make a difference or that same year and a half of my life to, to do something that, you know what, even if it's 100 people, it's going to be more than that. But, you know, even right. if it's 100 people, that's 94 more people, right? Yep, totally. Uh, and that matters more to me. Well, I'm glad you made that choice. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So tell our listeners, please, how they can get in touch with you, how they can follow you, all that good stuff. So all roads lead back to ProductiveFlourishing.com um, and you'll get the broader body of work. But if you're really interested in the book, Start Finishing, you're really ready to um, stop waiting for that perfect day um, for you to do the work that matters most. If you want to check out the book, Start Finishing, you can go to startfinishingbook.com and it will give you a bunch of information, including um, the free chapter. The free chapter is actually a lot of what we've been talking about today. So you can read more about that too. Um, and as far as what I would like you to do, um, more so than anything else, two things. One, play with the idea that you're not uniquely defective, that you're not constitutionally wired to struggle, that you're not fated to forever be unable to get your shit together. And then think about what world you want to create and live in. Mm. 
and what you can do to start doing that tomorrow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I am just really, really excited about the book getting out there and it being in everybody's hands. Um, because again, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning and that for me, it was the emotional piece that really resonated. And you've said a couple of times the word grace. And I just felt, I feel that. I feel that grace in terms of self-forgiveness for where we fall off the track, but also that grace in using those moments to get back on track and to push us through. So I just want to say thank you again, Charlie. It has been awesome. And we turned the tables. We turned the tables. Thanks <laughs> no, so much for having me. Normally you're interviewing me. And I interviewed you today. <laughs> and you did a fantastic job. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Have a great one. Mm -hmm.